Amen. Well, before we have the opportunity to partake in the Lord's Supper, we're going to look to God's Word and ask the Holy Spirit to teach us this morning as we continue in our series through the parable of Jesus. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open up to Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25, as we look at this passage of Scripture in just a moment. As you're turning there, I want to say welcome home to our mission team that served this last week in Western Port, Maryland, uh, demonstrating and communicating the gospel to some people in a very difficult area. We look forward to hearing some reports about how the Lord used you and some of the projects that you were able to be a part of this week, but we are glad to have you home and we missed you last week. Today we are going to be looking at a couple of passages of scripture that are a couple of parables, two small stories which really are in connection with one another. They're, they're commonly known as the parable of the, of the tower builder and the parable of the warring king. And if you've been in church much, you are likely familiar with these stories. Very small, very short, but many of us have heard the phrase to count the cost, which comes from the parable of the tower builder. But the question is, what cost is Christ calling us to count? These parables show two men, one probably a farmer and the other a king who had ambitious projects that before they undertook them required careful evaluation and deliberation. So what is the point that Jesus is trying to make in these two stories? Well, before we get to the point of that today, let me ask you a question, a kind of a reflective question this morning. If you and I were sitting down and we were having a cup of coffee and I said, tell me a little bit about how you became a Christian and your experience as a Christian, what would you say? Tell me a little bit about how you became a follower of Jesus and what your experience has been. Likely, you would tell me, like most people, that at some point in time you heard the truth that Jesus loved you and that Jesus has a plan for your life, probably a wonderful plan for your life, that that God loves you, that He's created you in His image, and that He has a plan for you. And that you have also probably came to a realization that God's plan involves a perfection that, that you don't have, and that you're a sinner, that you've sinned, and you've departed from God's plan for your life, but that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. You were then likely, like many of us, invited to pray a prayer that asked Jesus into your heart, and then someone told you that you needed to be baptized, you needed to, to follow through in baptism, and, and then you were told that you needed to do the good things that Christians do. And good Christians attend church, and good Christians do good works, and good Christians avoid certain risky behaviors in life, and this is what it means to be a Christian. You, you get baptized, you ask Christ into your heart, you, you do the things that God has called you to do. Quite likely from that point on, your, your early Christian experience was probably filled with a diet of warm Christian platitudes. Things such as God helps those who help themselves, right? Which is nowhere in Scripture. God will never put more on you than you can handle. Probably the biggest lie that we say. And that you just need to let go and let God. These are the Christian platitudes that we often fill ourselves with. You were likely told that real Christians really never struggle with sin and that if you have enough faith, that following Jesus is a path to personal prosperity and experiencing your best life now. 
And if that is your experience, then chances are that you've probably begun to think that some of what you were taught growing up in church didn't quite deliver as you were promised. That's because the gospel message that many of us were given growing up really isn't the message of Jesus in the New Testament. It's, it's not that it's a, 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 a false message. It's that for many of us, the, the message that got us into the Christian life was an incomplete message. It was true, but it was partially true. It is true that God created you, that God loves you, that God has an amazing plan for your life. It is true that, that you're a sinner, that that, that it stands before a holy God and that the only way to be saved of those sins is to trust in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for you. That is true. It is true that, that submission to Jesus involves a prayer of confession and repentance and trusting Him. And it is true that that is often marked by some sort of public witness of, of that faith through baptism and through involvement in the church. But But for many of us, we were given a partial gospel. And then after we got in the church and after we had been a Christian for several years, we started to discover that there were some things about being a follower of Jesus that we weren't told early on. In contrast to what many of us experience, what we read from Jesus is not a call to make a decision to be a Christian, but a call to follow him as a disciple. And what we read from Jesus is marked by a call to abandonment to self, not self-fulfillment. And it's a call that is marked by being willing to pay a deep price, not a promise of blessing and prosperity. And so the parables that we are about to read in Luke chapter 14 were intended by Jesus to show his followers that the decision to follow Him, the decision to identify yourself with Jesus Christ, comes at great personal cost. And so let's read these verses in Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. The Bible says in verse 25, Now great crowds accompanied Him. So Jesus has a, a great crowd following Him. This is kind of at the peak of Jesus' ministry. He's been, he's been performing a ministry of healing and teaching and People are amazed at at, at the things that God is doing. It's very evident that the hand of God is upon him. And so lots of people are accompanying him, but not necessarily following him. And so when great crowds accompanying him, he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not first sit down, And deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is to be thrown away. 
And then Jesus closes this parable by saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you'll remember, when we started this parable series several weeks ago, we talked about the the parable of the soils, and we talked about having good soil that could respond to the word, that that's what we want, is we, we want to be good soil that receives the word and bears fruit, and that the, the ability to be that good soil begins with having ears that hear the word of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's why we prayed as a, as a body a few minutes ago, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. Your servant is listening. We want to hear, we want to have ears that hear this morning. As we do so, let's talk about what I, I have commonly called in, in my ministry the discipleship dilemma in the evangelical church today. The evangelical church in America is experiencing a profoundly deep crisis in our day and time because for many years now, evangelical churches and, and many of our Southern Baptist churches have been experiencing significant decline numerically, declining baptisms decreased attendance in worship, and significantly less influence on the culture around us. And while we can look at passages in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and see that we are called to be salt and light, the reality is that the evangelical church in America has quickly lost its influence and often our light is hidden under a basket. Why is this? Well, there are a number of, of reasons that we can point to. But I believe that one of the main reasons why the evangelical church is declining in America is because we spent many years in the evangelical church preaching a gospel that did a good job of creating church members and religious consumers, but didn't do a good job of making disciples. We preached a message that has done a really good job of, of bringing people into the church to consume religious commodities and attend worship services like you are doing today, but we have done a very poor job across the landscape of evangelical Christianity doing the one thing that Jesus told us to do in Matthew chapter 28, which is to go and make disciples. And for many of us, we have made church members, but when it comes to being disciples, we've fallen short. We have a discipleship dysfunction in the church today primarily because we have decades of an unbiblical and improper understanding of salvation and discipleship. Somewhere along the lines, decades ago, we divorced the ideas of evangelism and discipleship from one another. And we talked about evangelism as preaching the gospel and calling people to a decision to follow Jesus. And discipleship is something we do in the church at 5 o'clock on Sunday afternoon when we put people in some kind of discipleship groups. And we divorced the ideas and made evangelism and discipleship two separate things in the church when God never intended for them to be separated. Evangelism and discipleship are two things that go hand in hand. You cannot have true evangelism if you're not making disciples, and you cannot make disciples if you don't have evangelism. And the thing that we've missed is that in the New Testament, Jesus never called people just to make decisions. He called people to be disciples. And one of the problems is that we haven't made true disciples of Jesus because we have left out of our discipleship programs some of the hard passages that Jesus gave us that demonstrated the cost of following Him. This passage that we're reading today is one of those. Because here at this strategically important intersection in His ministry, 
Jesus does something profoundly strange to many of us if we're reading the New Testament. He does something that actually excludes people from following Him, not includes them. You see, Jesus understood His mission clearly. And Jesus understood that His purpose was not to draw fans, it was to call people to be followers and disciples. Jesus' purpose was not to draw a crowd of people who, who adored Him. He wanted to call people who would sacrifice everything to follow Him. And so here at the height of his ministry, he does something radically different than many of us would have done. He doesn't praise the crowds for their attention. He actually calls them to something deeper and exposes for many of them the things that will ultimately keep them from being true disciples and ultimately keep them from experiencing the kingdom of God. In a parallel kind of way, when when Jesus was at another part in his ministry, at the height of his ministry in John chapter 6, he had just fed the 5,000, maybe even possibly as many as 10 to 12,000 people that he had fed that day. And then the next day he preaches a very hard message on what it really means to be a follower of him. And the Bible says in John chapter 6 that many of those who were, who were following him turned and walked away and followed him no more. You see, Jesus doesn't always make following him easier. He actually makes it more difficult because there is a huge difference between someone committing to be a disciple of Jesus and someone who decides to add Jesus to their personal list of religious works. There's a massive difference between those things. And for many of us, what was kind of sold to us in the church was you just take Jesus and you just add him to your attempt to be a good boy and a good girl and Jesus will fill in the gaps with everything else. But that's not the gospel. You see, what I have discovered in over 30 something years of being a follower of Jesus that is that if you're going to follow Jesus, you better stop to take a moment and evaluate what it's going to cost you to do so. Which brings us to the key truth that really is the point of these two parables together and that is this. That determining to follow Jesus is a weighty decision which requires careful inspection, personal sacrifice, and total allegiance. That's what Jesus is saying here because these two parables are framed right in the context of Jesus saying, if you want to follow me, this is what it's going to cost you. And if you're going to do that, you better sit down and evaluate it and count the cost before you do so. The point is made clear when you put both these parables together in the context of verses 25 through 27. You see, in the first parable, we see a man, presumably a farmer, who decides to build a tower on his property, which would likely be used to store his grain and be assembled to the rest of the community about his prosperity. And so he has this great ambition because he's got abundant crop that's about to come in at the harvest. He wants to build this tower as a symbol of his prosperity. And while he has a commendable ambition, Jesus says, why would you undertake that if you don't first stop to make sure that you can see the project through to completion? Otherwise, once you've laid a foundation and figure out that you don't have the resources to finish the tower, all you have is an unfinished project. And that tower with just a foundation would do him no good and serve to the community as a symbol of his failure, not his success. Likewise... The landscape of evangelical Christianity is littered with half-built towers of commitment to Jesus Christ. 
These are people who at one time publicly declared in a church their faith and their belief in Jesus Christ as the risen Son of Almighty God. And yet for many of them, there is little evidence of Jesus in their lives today. No spiritual fruit, no devotion to Jesus, no loyalty to the church, the body of Christ. What we have across the landscape of evangelical Christianity are half-built towers. And we wonder why the culture looks at us and mocks us for our belief. John Stott said these words in the mid-70s. He wrote these in a book called Basic Christianity. He said, Jesus never concealed the fact that his religion included a demand as well as an offer. Indeed, the demand was as total as the offer was free. If he offered men his salvation, he also demanded their submission. He gave no encouragement whatever to thoughtless applicants for discipleship. He brought no pressure to bear on any inquirer. He he sent irresponsible enthusiasts away empty-handed. The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow Him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom, Nominal Christianity. Listen to these words he said. This was 40 years ago. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion, It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. The message of Jesus was very different. He never lowered his standards or modified his conditions to make his call more readily acceptable. He asked his first disciples and has asked every disciple since then to give them their thoughtful and total commitment, and nothing less than this will do. You know, they tell us that we have in our Southern Baptist Convention of Churches little less than 15 million adherents to or members of Southern Baptist Churches. That number has been declining over the last 10 years, almost every year. But we have about 15 million people whose names are on the roll as a member of a Southern Baptist Church. And yet less than 7 million of them will attend a church any time within a given year probably. And even within our own church, I don't even know what our total membership statistics are, but if word holds true, probably about a third of the people who are actually members of this church attend this church in any given year. This is what I'm talking about when we talk about half-built towers that are primarily based on the fact that we've done a really good job of telling people that they need to know Jesus as their Savior, but not really identifying that if you're going to follow Jesus, you're called to be a disciple. In the second parable, Jesus tells about a king who is making preparations for war because conflict has arisen. Perhaps his kingdom is about to be invaded. Perhaps he's about to invade another kingdom. But while he wants to defend his kingdom or advance his kingdom... The wise king must first sit down and evaluate and understand if it's a battle that he can win. 
Because if he's vastly outnumbered, it would be better to make terms of peace and swear fealty to another king than to risk the lives of thousands, including his own, for a war that he cannot win. And likewise, many enter the Christian life on the promise that following Jesus is the path to future eternal bliss and your best life now without actually stopping to think that following Jesus is a commitment to surrender your personal kingdom to his. In your notes, I wrote these notes down that we need to make this very clear that there is absolutely no connection to Christ without a call to be a disciple. There is no connection to Christ without a call to be a disciple. The idea that one can be a Christian without becoming a disciple of Jesus is completely foreign and completely antithetical to the message of the New Testament. The idea, this word Christian has become hijacked in, in our culture to mean someone who, who, who has good morals, who is, is religious in their practice, who believes in the Christian faith, who practices Judeo-Christian ethics. And yet the reality is that we have accosted that term to include people who have never truly been saved in the first place. Jesus did not die on the cross to create a church like that. And that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus' entire earthly mission was a call to himself of people who would be disciples, who would surrender to him, who would learn of him, and who would spend their lives advancing the mission of God to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus called. Not nominal, sometimes attending church, sometimes not just doing the best I can till Jesus comes back kind of Christians. And the reality of it is, is that most of us have never been told that. Most of us have never sat down and looked at this passage of Scripture where Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Let's be real honest, that passage makes every one of us in here uncomfortable. Because those are very strong terms for discipleship. And so for many of us, we'd rather say, this is why I think we've created this, this secondary class of Christians where we have Christians and then we have disciples. And Christians are those who, who've asked Jesus into their heart and they're going to heaven one day. And disciples are those who really want to follow Jesus. But that is absolutely foreign to what the Bible tells us. There is no call to Christ without a call to be a disciple. And there is no call to be a disciple without a commitment to follow Jesus. And if we are going to follow Jesus, that is a weighty decision which requires careful inspection, personal sacrifice, and total allegiance. And not just one time, every day. Every day we have to get up and ask ourselves, am I willing to follow Christ today wherever He would call me to go? Am I willing to sacrifice what he would call me to sacrifice? Am I willing to swear fealty and allegiance to a sovereign king? And am I willing to lay down my kingdom in submission to his? So in the brief time we have left before we take communion, I want to give you three applicational points, three truths on being disciples. What does it mean to be disciples? Three, three things I just see from this text that, that help highlight this point. And the first of those is simply this. We've alluded to it already. False disciples of Christ are worthless to the kingdom of God. 
false disciples of Jesus are absolutely worthless to the kingdom of God. I'll even go so far as to say false disciples of Jesus Christ are actually contrary to the message of the gospel. And they do more harm than they do good. What stands out in this passage is not who Jesus includes in the list of who can be disciples, but who he excludes in this list. Three times in these verses, he identifies people who cannot be his disciples. Do you see that? He says that in verse 26. If you don't hate your mother, father, sister, brother, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. In verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In verse 33, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's about who he excludes, not who he includes. Jesus is not being very positive here. He's actually being quite negative and defining for us what being a disciple is by describing for us explicitly what it is not. And in verse 34 and 35, he says these words. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's, It's worthless. It is thrown away. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus equates false disciples to salt, which has lost its saltiness. Now, Jesus has used this metaphor of salt before to describe those who are called into the kingdom of God. He called them the salt of the earth. And and salt is an abundant and extremely valuable commodity. In Jesus' day and time, salt was used for a number of things, not only for, for adding taste, but also for preservation and for, for, for helping in clearing roads. It was used for dozens of different uses. But Jesus says, if the salt goes bad, it's absolutely useless. You cannot even put worthless salt on a manure pile to aid in decomposition. You don't get much more worthless than that. And Jesus says, all you can do with bad salt is throw it out. And here's what Jesus' point is. His point is, is that having a church filled with false disciples is worse than having a church without disciples at all. Having a church filled with false disciples, having a church filled with people who falsely assume that they are saved and eternally secure when they have never actually evaluated the claims of Christ on their lives and whose faith has never cost them anything is a dangerous thing, Jesus says. It's worse to have a church filled with false converts who think because they walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, and got baptized that that was their ticket to heaven. And they never evaluated the actual cost of what it meant to follow Him. And then when following Him gets tough, when you have to make hard decisions because you really don't have an allegiance to Christ, all you have is some sort of false ticket to heaven, you you don't sacrifice. False disciples never sacrifice for the mission of Christ. False disciples never share their faith with other people because they have no faith to share. False disciples never invest personally in God's Word because they're too busy with the other affairs of this world. False disciples are under the delusion that the church is all about them, their wants, their desires, and their comfort. And false disciples do nothing for Christ. 
And I am personally afraid that much of evangelical Christianity over the last 50 to 75 years has been built on the back of false disciples for decades because we continue to inflate our baptism and attendance numbers on the backs of people who publicly affirmed a decision of Christ but never were actually discipled to be true followers of Jesus. We were so happy to get them in the church that we didn't actually disciple them when they finally started coming. We didn't show them that the gospel is about self-denial, not self-fulfillment, and that the only way to truly be at peace with God is to surrender your personal agenda to His. And for many of us, that was the bag of goods that we were sold. You see, if you choose to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life, it is going to cost you. For many of us, we've experienced that. It will cost you personal freedoms. It will cost you relational equity with some people to follow Jesus. It may cost you job advancement at some point in time to follow Jesus. And for some people in our world, it even costs them their very lives. And the reality of it is, is that if you want a safe, comfortable, and secure life, don't follow Jesus. Because it's not going to happen. If anyone would come after me, he needs to count the cost. So false disciples are worthless to the kingdom of God. But secondly, we see that disciples are made, not made in the crowd. They are made in the one-on-one time with the master. Disciples are not made in the crowd. They're made in the one-on-one time with Jesus. In verses 25 through 27, we saw this a second ago, great crowds were accompanying him. And then in the midst of that, he says, if anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Let's, let's clarify something here that, that goes against everything that we in American capitalism have ever been taught. And that is this. Bigger is not always better. We are the people of mega-sized meals and big-screen TVs. But bigger is not always a sign of productivity, and neither is it always a measure of effectiveness. Sometimes bigger is just bigger. In the evangelical church world, for decades, we assumed that bigger churches must be doing something right that smaller churches are not, because surely they have something being blessed of God when they have all those people coming. Look at all the people that are going to that church as opposed to my church. They must be doing something right. God must be blessing that because look at the people that are coming. And yet the reality of it is, is that a circus draws a crowd, but that doesn't do anything to secure eternal life. And what you will see when you follow Jesus is that Jesus never equated the crowds as a supreme measure of success or effectiveness. Jesus did a great job of drawing crowds to him and exposing himself to thousands of people. But one of the things that Jesus always did was to try to draw people from the crowds to the smaller circle of genuine followers and disciples. And what we see is that the closer Jesus gets to Calvary, the smaller the circle of followers becomes. You see, the ministry of Jesus, he intentionally and deeply invested in a small group of people who were the most willing to be his disciples and to follow him. At best, we know about 120 people. And in that group, he developed 12 men specifically he designated as apostles whom he would give the charge of leading the movement once 
it had begun. And once he was gone. You see, disciples are not made in the crowd. Disciples are made one-on-one with the master. And here's what I want us to understand. Listen carefully. You cannot successfully follow Jesus and be a disciple if the only way you follow him is in the crowd. You cannot successfully follow him and be a disciple if the only way that you follow him is in the crowd like this. Corporate worship is a vital part of what we do as a church. And my hope and prayer is that we grow numerically as a church in such a way that we can provide multiple opportunities for corporate worship. I pray that these pews would be filled multiple times on Sundays and that we would have a very powerful worship experience because in this crowd we experience what it means to be one Jesus follower among many. In this crowd, we sing songs collectively of our allegiance to Jesus Christ. We corporately listen to the proclamation of the word. And in this crowd, we will receive in a few moments the communion of our Lord. But if Sunday morning corporate worship is the sum total of your Christian experience on any given week, you are missing out on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And let me say that again because some of you didn't hear what I said. If Sunday morning corporate worship is the sum total of your Christian experience on any given week, you are totally missing out on what it means to be a disciple. If you rarely pick up your Bible until it's time to come to church next Sunday, you are missing out on what it means to be a disciple. The crowd is a wonderful spiritual family, but disciples are not made here in the crowd. They are made one-on-one with Jesus and a few other followers of him. Which is why if we're going to be the church that God has called us to be, we must create environments and opportunities to put people in discipleship groups with other believers. One of the key things that we need to be doing quickly as a church is developing disciple makers in this church who can take people and study God's Word together. On Sunday night, right now, I have a group of guys that meet with me on Sunday night after church. Is exactly what I'm doing with them, is discipling them on what it means to follow Jesus so that hopefully in a few months I can release them to disciple others in what it means to follow Jesus. You know why? Because disciples are not made here in the crowd. Disciples are made one-on-one with Jesus and a few other Christians. This is why being in a small group is incredibly important. This is why gathering together with other Christians in fellowship to study, and not just eating food together, but to study God's Word together is important. Disciples are not made in the crowd. They're made one-on-one with the Master. And then let me say finally that we need to carefully assess what being a disciple truly means in the church today. We need to carefully assess what being a disciple truly means. If anything, reading this passage today should make every one of us in here stop and think and ask this question, am I truly a disciple of Jesus? Am I really following Jesus on the terms that he has made for me to be a disciple? We need to assess what that means because for most of us, we were sold an incomplete package. And then after we became a Christian, after we got involved in the church, all of a sudden we began to see some of the things that Jesus says in the Bible and they make us uncomfortable and we think, "Ah, that's not really what I was told. Let me give you three assessments about what being a disciple really means, what discipleship really means. Number one, Jesus says in verse 26 that discipleship means that Jesus takes relational priority over all others. Jesus takes relational priority over all others. Jesus' words about hating our family members seem harsh and abrupt. 
And surely Jesus does not want us to treat our family members with spite and scorn and disdain, does He? No. The term that is used here literally in the Greek is a comparison term which means to love something significantly less than something else. And Jesus is saying that if you want to be my disciple, your be my disciple means that your love for Jesus is so strong that by nature we love those in our family considerably less than we love Jesus. That's what it means. We love all of those in other relationships considerably less than we love him. As a matter of fact, I would submit to you that you cannot actually love your family members the way that God calls you to until you love Jesus more than you love them. Because as long as you love them more than you love Jesus, they are an idol which is competing for your affection and your growth as a follower of Jesus. And what they need is not you to smother them with their love. What they need is they need to see someone in their life who loves Jesus supremely. And I'll make it a little more personal because many of us in here struggle with family members who, who don't know God. Children who've walked away from the faith. And I really believe that one of the reasons why is because for many people, not for everybody, but for many people in our lives, they've never actually seen someone who loves Jesus more than anybody else. Because there's something incredibly infectious about a person who loves Jesus more than anything. You want to be around those people. You want, to, you want to know what they have. You want, to, you, want to, you want to get the secret sauce that they're drinking because something about them is different. You see, discipleship means that Jesus takes relational priority over everyone else. Families, friends, and associates. We cannot love someone else more than Jesus and still be willing to follow Jesus where he would have us. I've seen this happen sometimes in people's lives where someone begins to feel a call to Christ to do something that, that just seems out of sorts. Maybe it's a college student who, who's been evaluating their life and they sense that God's calling them to the mission field or calling them to go somewhere to plant a church. And, and their parents go, well, you just got out of college. You need to get a job. You need to make some money. And you, you don't need to do that. You're going to go broke. And, and you don't need to go overseas. And or, or we, we see people who, who say they, they're called to do one thing and their family members or their friends try to tell them that's not what you need to do. And they face with the decision to say, no, you know what? Jesus takes relational priority over all others. We have brothers and sisters who are in other parts of the world for whom their decision to follow Jesus literally means that they will not only be ostracized from their family, but in some cases they might even be killed because of it. But discipleship means that Jesus takes relational priority over all others. What does it mean in your life to reevaluate your personal relationships in light of your love for Jesus Christ? Discipleship also means being willing to suffer for the glory of Christ. That's what he says in verse 27 when he says, Who does not, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus speaks about carrying a cross. And many of us know that the cross was a symbol of suffering. But unfortunately, we have made this term, carrying my cross, a metaphor for any sort of personal burden or inconvenience. And when we do, we miss out on what Jesus is saying here. Coming to church when you have a headache is not carrying a cross. Dealing with a difficult neighbor or church member is not carrying a cross. 
Losing your job, while terribly difficult, is not necessarily carrying a cross. You see, the cross in Jesus' day was a symbol of death. It was a symbol that your life was about to end. It was an instrument of torture and suffering. And when these people heard Jesus say, if you do not carry your own cross, you cannot be a disciple, they knew exactly what it meant. It meant that being a disciple of Jesus was the end of you. It was the end of living life on your terms. It was the end of living life to pursue your personal agenda. It was a willingness to take on suffering, even if it meant that Christ would be glorified. Jesus made it clear that He was going to the cross to glorify God by accomplishing the plan of redemption. And if the plan of God meant death on the part of Jesus, why would the plan of God mean anything less than death to ourselves on our part? I love the words of Paul in Galatians when he says, May I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Discipleship means that Jesus takes relational priority over all others and that we must be willing to suffer for the glory of Christ, but ultimately discipleship means a total surrender of everything else to follow Jesus. This is what he means when he says, Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is a statement of personal relinquishment and a renunciation of anything other than Jesus. It means that if Christ is not the center of our lives and that anything that does not come from Him does not advance His cause and does not grow us closer to Him, those things should be willingly relinquished for Him. You see, Jesus wasn't calling His followers to some sort of communal form of living where all of their personal goods would be relinquished and they lived on whatever He told them to. But what he's using is the king as an example to say that it would be better to relinquish your personal goods and submit to another than to have those taken when that king dethrones your kingdom. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that while he came to this earth the first time as a lowly baby in the stable in Bethlehem, Jesus Christ will return again as the conquering king of this world. And when he does so, there will not be any kingdom in this world that will stand opposed to him. And so it is far better to be a disciple who has fully surrendered everything to King Jesus now than to be standing opposed to him when he comes again. Any of you that does not relinquish everything you have cannot be my disciple. Many of you, if you grew up in a Southern Baptist church, probably... Every week you had one of two invitation hymns that were sung, right? I surrender all, or I have decided to follow Jesus. You remember that? And I want you to think about how many dozens, if not hundreds of times, you sang these words. But think about them now in light of what we've heard today. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Let me ask you this question just real simply. Are you a follower of Jesus? Have you ever come to the point in your life where you said, you know what, Jesus? In light of everything that you've done for me, I cannot just sit on the sidelines and be a fan and and just settle for religious stuff. I want to follow you. 
I talked about having an incomplete gospel that many of us trusted in many years ago. Well, the only solution to that is to complete it by saying, you know what, I have decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, I still will follow. My cross I'll carry till I see Him, but I'm following Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? In just a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel. Before we take the Lord's Supper, we want to give you an opportunity to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Not a Christian who walks an aisle and prays a prayer and moves out of here religious, but to be a follower of Jesus Christ today. And if you want to surrender your life to follow Him in just a moment as we sing this song, we want to give you the opportunity to respond. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you sent Jesus not only to die on the cross for our sins, but you sent Him to totally transform everything that we are, to take us from being people with our own personal agenda to people who would set that agenda aside to follow Christ. So Father, I pray that today you would find us to be followers in this place and not just fans, not just people who who have an infatuation with Christ, but people who are willing to surrender everything to follow Him. May we be found faithful to that call this morning. Speak to our hearts and call us to obey in whatever you call us to this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Would you sing this song with us, please?